The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. Nothing beats a weekend away with the family in the great outdoors, whether it's camping, hiking, river rafting, or anything in between. With third-row seating, nobody is left out. The entire family can experience the thrill together, and nobody wants a dead phone. Available dual wireless charging pads make it so nobody gets stuck, and we can check our fantasy baseball teams together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Oh, and first pitch crushing! Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy Now, here's Frank, Scott, and Chris. Welcome in to Starting Pitcher Preview Part 2. And welcome to Fantasy Baseball Today. On Wednesday, February 22nd, Frank Stanfield joined by Scott White and Chris Towers. Today on the show, we're going to get through the top 50-ish starting pitchers in ADP, which means we have... 30-plus pitchers to talk about. <laughs> Let's see how many we actually get to. Sleepers, breakouts, and busts. And if you're wondering about the deeper names, there will be a starting pitcher preview part three. That will be tomorrow. Well, we'll talk about prospects and all those super late-round guys and all that fun stuff. But... Gentlemen, let's jump right in, and we'll start where we uh, left off. We got through 16 pitchers in ADP. I did not talk about Shohei Otani. We'll break down both hitter and pitcher Otani on our position previews recap podcast next week. Uh, We're going to talk about groups of three today, starting in the sixth round of a 12-team league, and that brings us to Max Fried with an ADP of 60.8, Luis Castillo at 62.6, and Kevin Gosman at 66.2. Scott, we'll start with you, and I'm going to throw Gosman your way because he's really interesting. His skills were fantastic. Fifth among starting pitchers in K-minus walk rate last year, tied for first in swinging strike rate, and second in FIP, yet... He led baseball in BABIP, 363, by far the highest BABIP in all of baseball, which, you know, seems like there should be some regression coming on that. Uh, And as a result, I mean, he could perform like a, you know, top 15 or so starting pitcher. Uh, Do you share my optimism in Kevin Gossman? Yeah, I I think so. It was a little frustrating because we noticed this as it was playing out last year and we kept waiting for the correction to come and it never came uh and of course you know the longer you give a a a, a trend a, a a trend that seems out of sorts the longer you give it to correct the more likely it is to correct but the longer you give it the more durable it becomes too so it's a bit of a paradox there What's also interesting about this uh, BAPIP issue for Gosman is it was especially 
bad at home. He had a 397 BABIP at home versus 335 on the road. And of course, in Toronto, they have an artificial playing surface. Could that have had something to do with it? It was the first year in Toronto. I don't know. There's also this weird thing where he has been, Kevin Gosman has been made the poster child for his delivery out of the stretch, which if he's allowing a lot of hits, he'll be working out of the stretch a lot. They're, they're cracking down on what's a balk and what isn't a balk because of the pitch timer rules and the um, disengagements from the mound rules. And, and he's having to remake his delivery from the stretch in order for it not to be called a balk all the time. So that's an interesting wrinkle that raises a little bit of concern. So I, I don't, like, I, I, I value Kevin Gosman very sim- similarly to the players he's ranked around. Is it possible he could end up having more of a Zach Wheeler type season like he did in 2021? Yeah, I think it's possible, but I'm not, I'm not willing to go that far with it. I think some improvement in whip and a little bit in ERA in relation to whip would be welcome enough and would certainly make him worth his price tag. He, he seems pretty durable at this point in terms of how many innings he eats. But I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a situation like Aaron Nola two years ago where like, oh, this is obviously not right and he's gonna bounce back in a huge way. I think Gosman is pretty good as he is and he'll probably be a little better than last year, but probably not as good as 2021. Yeah, you mentioned the surface that they play on out there in Toronto in Rogers Center, and Kevin Gosman allows a lot of hard contact too. So uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the top two names in Babbitt last year were both Blue Jays. It was Kevin Gosman and Jose Barrio. So, but, but he was 35 points clear of Jose Barrios. Oh, yeah. I mean, he should, in theory, I think there's a lot of improvement coming. Yeah. Uh, Chris, two other names here on this list Max Fried. He kind of reminds me of Sandy Alcantara Light, uh, where he's consistently going deep into his starts. He doesn't get a ton of strikeouts, but he gets enough. He has 52 wins since 2019. That's actually second most in baseball behind only Garrett Cole. And the other name was Luis Castillo, who, if you look at his partial season statistics, his ERA went up with the Mariners, but the skills actually got a lot better once he got to Seattle. And it's just a much better ballpark to pitch in. So uh, do you find yourself targeting any of these? Freed, Castillo, Gosman? I think all three of these guys are, are really good. I, I like all three of them. Freed is probably the the low variance option here. And he's kind of like you, you said he's kind of like Sandy Alcantara. He's kind of like Julio Rios as well. There, there's kind of a like Russian nesting doll with like Sandy Alcantara and then Julio Rios and then Max Freed. And then like Framber Valdez, I think you can throw in that uh, comp as well. He's you know not quite as good in terms of whip as the other guys, but like they all basically do the same things and Freed pitches deep into games. He doesn't get a ton of strikeouts on a per inning basis, but he'll get you there on, on volume without, you know, he's not going to hurt you too much there. So I think he's very good. Castillo, even more so than Gosman. I think Castillo is probably the, uh, the high variance option here. And I'm not sure his upside is necessarily higher than, Kevin Gosman, I think they're very similar pitchers. So I I like all three of them. I don't really have a particular uh, preference versus Gosman and Castillo. I have Gosman ranked a little bit higher, but it's very, very close. So I don't, uh, if, I don't draw a huge distinction between those two. If I'm personally going pitching heavy 
by my standards for this year, one of these guys is probably my number two. Yeah. Because I think, well, like I said on 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 part one of the the pitcher starting pitcher preview, Max Fried is basically Julio Arias in my eyes, and the cost is much cheaper. And Castillo and Gosman could deliver an ace outcomes themselves. So so like these, these seem like really strong number two options. I I can't imagine I'd invest more in a number two option than this. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going pitching light, not the pitching super light. <laughs> Strategy I outlined in part one, but if I'm going pitching light, I'd I'd be okay with any of these as my number one, as well. Yeah, the only thing with Freed is just performing like it are good enough. Freed as your number one leaves you in a bit of a hole as a in strikeouts. Yeah. That's yeah, he's I think he's That's, very he's like the platonic ideal of a number two starting pitcher. That's the concern with going pitching light in general. But you're right, especially if if it's somebody like Freed or or even if it was somebody like Arias, it'd be the same. Yeah, story, yeah. basically. Yeah, they're the same guy basically. Three more names going at the end of the sixth round. If you're playing in a 12-team league, Zach Gallen with an ADP of 67.2, Christian Javier at 68.6, and Hugh Darvish at 72.2. I think an interesting name that you could pair with Max Fried if you want to target strikeouts is actually Christian Javier, who had a fantastic season, and I would hope that the innings kind of increase this year. They signed him to a five-year extension this offseason, so clearly the Astros do have a ton of confidence in Javier, and he was really good. 2.54 ERA, 0.95 whip, 13.8% swinging strike rate. That was 11th highest among starting pitchers with at least 140 innings pitched. Was amazing in the postseason. And Scott, I hate to bring it up, buddy. You're wearing the Spencer Strider shirt, but is there really a 35-pick difference between Spencer Strider and Christian Javier? Just talking about the player. I know how ridiculous Strider was, but they were kind of similar last year. And I don't know. I like both of them. I just, I feel like I would rather draft Javier 35 picks later than Strider, personally. Yeah, I was feeling bad yesterday because I, I felt like all we did was throw shade at Spencer Strider. It, it has nothing to do with. <laughs> He's Spencer terrible. Strider. Just admit it. And here we are. I'm the first thing I do today. Jeez. You know, like people take very broad takeaways from these podcasts. I feel like, oh, they say Spencer Strider is no good. <laughs> that's that's the takeaway for a lot of the audience. And like, no, Spencer Strider is probably my favorite pitcher. It's certainly my favorite to watch right now. Uh, I just think, I just think uh, enthusiasm for him and fantasy has gone a little overboard, and he's being overpriced. So that's that's why we framed him the way we did. Yesterday, uh, and to your point, comparing him to Christian Javier, I mean, I'd rather have Spencer Strider, but I'm not sure the gap should be this big either. Christian Javier, he he had nearly 12k per nine last year. Strider was closer to 14k per nine, so you know, as good as Javier appears to be for for that, Strider is even better. But they're kind of just unhittable, even looking beyond. The uh, the strikeouts. Christian Javier, his final four starts last year, he allowed a combined six hits. And among pitchers with at least 100 innings last year, his 169 batting average against was the lowest. And that's something that's held pretty steady, maybe not that exact number, but in terms of hit prevention, Christian Javier has been a whiz at that, even going back to his time in the minors. Uh, it's... Another case of a guy who's has extreme fly ball tendencies, even during 
the span of his career that coincided with the juice ball era, he was pretty good considering at preventing home runs. And that's a good combination. Like if you allow a lot of fly balls and they're not home runs, you're just not giving up hits. And so I think now he's now that we're out of the juice ball era, like he is perfectly suited for this new environment for preventing damage of any kind, both with his bat missing ability and his weak fly ball inducing ability. So it really just becomes a matter, as we were saying for Strider, of, of how much of a workload is is Christian Javier able to take on? And uh, you got know, to he, 106 he got, standings last year. With playoffs included, yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. He did. So it's a little short of 150 during the regular season, but got to 160. So it's not even as much of a question as this is, as it is for Strider, but it is a little bit of a question. I think at the price tag, though, it's not a question that concerns me because we're about to get into a whole crop of pitchers who have that question. Two other names here. Zach Gallen had a huge year and was carried by an insane second half. Reminds me of... Jack Flaherty, I think it was in 2019, that second half that he had, where it was just, it was fresh in our minds and he was ridiculous. But Zach Gallen, 10.3K per nine in that second half, sub two ERA, sub one whip, uh, races curveball usage. So that was really the driving force there. My question, Chris, and it's kind of similar to Sandy Alcantara, where Gallen posted just a 237 Babbitt. Now that that's even lower than Sandy by a lot, actually, too. And it was actually tied for second lowest among starting pitchers. 46% ground ball rate for Zach Gallen. There is going to be regression here. There's no doubt in my mind. And on top of that, only a 10% swinging strike rate. So I like the pitcher Gallen. To me, it feels like maybe we're overvaluing him based on an unsustainable second half. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. You know, one of the one of the podcasts that we did during the early days of the, the pandemic shutdown. I can't remember in what context it was, but I, I called Zach Allen the next Zach Greinke. And partially that was the, you know, mirroring of their first names. You love that. But also just like the skill set. He, he's not, he doesn't like blow you away with stuff. He doesn't light the radar gun up. He doesn't have this huge bendy breaking balls or anything like that. He just pitches really well. And that's the one thing, you know, you talk about the very low Babbitt. Well, that's what he did in the minors. Too. For the most part, there was one one outlier season where he had a 351 BABIP in 2018, but 197 in 2019 has been below 290 in BABIP every year of his career. I, I think there's a legitimate hit suppression skill here with Zach Allen. I'm not sure if it's quantifiable. He's good in terms of ex on contact, but not you know necessarily uh, Julio Urias-level standout. But I, I think he's sort of a... Like when you look at his pitch arsenal stats, it's kind of jack of all trades, master of none. But you can also flip that and say that like you look at everything he does and he's kind of the the like kitchen sink. I don't know what the right analogy here is. I'm, I'm reaching for it. But like the the sum is better than the 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 whole is better than the sum of the parts, I guess, would be the way I would say it. He's like not an amazing strikeout pitcher. He's not an incredible control pitcher. He's got good contact quality of contact suppression but not elite, and it just kind of all adds up to making him a good pitcher. I think he's probably not an elite pitcher, though, which, you know, that's where the Zach Greinke comp doesn't work because Zach Greinke obviously was, but, like, if he can sustain the control and command improvements that he made in the second half last season especially, I do think he has a chance to just keep kind of outrunning what we expect of him, which is 
who he was as a prospect as well. That is Zach Gallon, who we were just talking about. Last name here, Scott. Want to quickly run through you, Darvish, who threw 194 and two thirds innings, the second most of his career. Uh, dating back to 2013. He had 25 quality starts. That was tied for second most. Uh, he, nothing crazy, Scott. Like, I didn't see a pitch mix change or velocity. The control really took a step forward. Now, I don't know how sustainable that is for Darvish, but he's kind of the last of this SP2 group. It's usually him and Musgrove that are the last ones left, and I'm totally fine getting either one of those guys who, who last between the two. So I, I find myself drafting a decent amount of Darvish. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with him too. He's always been a difficult pitcher to evaluate because there's so many variables to him just by virtue of him throwing like a six different pitches at least. Uh, there <laughs> there's probably different variations on those six different pitches that make it even There definitely are. <laughs> you know, like double digit pitches and you know, a lot of times he just doesn't have the pitch mix working right uh optimally and he ends up with these ugly seasons or stretches of seasons as a result. At this point last year, we were halfway convinced you Darvish was finished. I can't remember exactly how Lady was going, kind of in the mid-range at starting pitcher, lower than this. And because, we've done that multiple times in the last four or five years. Yeah, yeah, not the first time, but especially during that second half in 2021. He had an ERA, I think it was over six. Was it and, the first half of 2019 that was similar? Uh, it was tw- like the first two months of 2019. He was awful. And then been. like was the best pitcher in baseball for four months or something like that. It may have been. Yeah. And no, then was the it. best pitcher in baseball in 2020, arguably. He, he's <laughs> yeah. yep. very that, frustrating. Very frustrating. So what's interesting about him rebounding to the degree he did last year is that swinging strike rate was down. K per nine rate was actually the lowest of his career by far. He barely had a strikeout per inning. And that's that's not what we're used to seeing from you, Darvish. So, you know, it, it's kind of similar to the question people are asking about Justin Verlander. Did he just get away with it because the environment was not as hitter friendly and, and there are actually signs of decline here and as he's in his late 40s? I'm giving more benefit 30s. of the doubt. Late 30s, yeah. I'm giving more benefit of the doubt to Verlander than I am to Darvish in part because Darvish has had so many inconsistencies in recent years and throughout his career that like, even if everything looked fine with the, the strikeouts and everything, I, I still wouldn't feel totally confident we know what we're getting from him this year. But we know that at his best, even at this age, he certainly resembles an ace. So as kind of one of as one of the last pitchers in the quasi ace tier here, uh, I, I think that's appropriate and I'd be fine taking Darvish if if the price is right. Like if I'm if I'm going super low budget pitching and I wind up with Darvish as my ace in like round eight or nine of a twelve team more likely round eight probably of a twelve team league, like that it's workable. That's a brilliant strategy as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to stress so much about um, all the little reasons for concern there because it's a potential ace at a really low price for a, for a, a team build that demands that. Um, so I do think Darvish definitely has his uses, but there, there are reasons not to feel totally comfortable drafting him too. And I think yeah, Darvish m- won't be in his late 40s until his current contract <laughs> with the Padres is over. That's right. It should be clear. 
I, you know, I heard late 40s and my mind instantly went to Julio Franco. I was like, <laughs> that's probably the last guy we've seen play that late into their career. Or maybe the only one. I, I don't, I'd don't. i have to look through baseball history. Um, you might be on to something, though, Scott, with with the... You mentioned this yesterday Jamie Moyer erasure, by the way. Yeah. You mentioned yesterday with Verlander that maybe he pitched to contact on purpose. It's just like every player I was taking notes for, or at least every pitcher it felt like. It's like, oh, their swinging strike rate was down from 2021. Their swinging strike rate down from 2021. Yeah. It could be That's... a conscious decision, or it could also be, hey, you know, crack down on sticky stuff. They weren't using it. Or, there's it's, multiple it's things, just, but it was, a, it was a constant to me how, how widespread it was, particularly among the high-end yeah. pitchers, you know? like, and, and as you talked about at the start of yesterday's show, last year was the first time league-wide strikeout rate went down in like, like you, I think he's pointed out it was the lowest it's been in five years. I think it was the first time it went down in like 20 plus years. Like it's been steadily rising over the years and, and then it, it reversed for the first time in forever. And partially that's the universal DH. Yeah, partially. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Chris, what, who's, what's the name of this guest that we have on screen right now? Uh, this is Liz Lemon, the cat who <laughs> my wife is out tonight. And uh, I had to leave the door open because otherwise the cats would be screaming to be let in or out of the room, whichever one they weren't. So I have to leave the door open now. And this is what happens. All right. For those of you watching. Let's hit two more pitchers before we see a little drop in ADP. This is the start of the seventh round. Framber Valdez at 72.6 and Joe Musgrove at 79.4. Chris, we'll start with Valdez, who set the single season record with 25 straight quality starts last season. He actually set a career high 11.3% swinging strike rate. The velocity went up. He added this new cutter that he threw 10% of the time, and it was a really good pitch for him. So we know he's got that awesome hook. But now he's adding velocity, and he's got a third pitch. I I think it's pretty sustainable for Valdez. He goes deep into his starts. He pitches for one of the best teams in baseball. Uh, and he's a fantastic target in head-to-head points leagues. What are your thoughts on Framber Valdez? I think you nailed it, everything you said. He, he's basically, it's kind of perfect that the 2020s version of Dallas Keuchel pitches for the uh, Houston Astros, because that's what he is. He he throws a lot of pitches out of the strike zone, but he doesn't get a lot of walks because he's really good at generating swings on those pitches. He generates weak contact as a result of that. All of that contact goes on the ground. His average launch angle out is negative 3.6 degrees, which is incredibly low. And so like, there's probably a cap on how good he can be, but as we saw with Dallas Keuchel, there was that one Cy Young outlier season where everything came together and he was really, really good. So I think... Like, Framber Valdez, I really like targeting him in my points leagues, but even in your roto leagues, he's a really nice, safe option at a and position where there are not a lot of safe options. And the reason you guys point out the the points league thing is after Sandy Alcantara, Framber Valdez's his workload expectations are the highest of anyone in baseball. Uh, he was second in complete games with three to Sandy Alcantara's six. And... It's a distant second. I'll give you that. But it, he is second, I would say. If we're just ranking pitchers by, by how much workload we expect them, how, how many innings we expect them to take on from start to start, I would put Framber Valdez second on that list. Joe Musgrove is the other name that goes in this range, Scotty. And for me, he's 
kind of the cutoff of, you know, all right, once we get past this, I don't know if I want any of these other pitchers as my SP2. Uh, and if you look at his 2021 with the Padres next to his 2022, it, it's like the Pam Beasley gif. It's they're, they're the same picture. It's, it's basically the same season. He was, you know, awesome uh, in both of those years. I don't know that he has a huge ceiling, but I'm not really sure that it matters either. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's it, like I look at his, I look at Joe Musgrove's and Zach Gallon's numbers side by side, just the final numbers, and I think those are pretty similar. So why do I like Zach Gallon so much more than Joe Musgrove? And I, I think it's partly just this feeling that this is as good as Joe Musgrove can get, and it's really good. It's not quite an ace, but uh, it's really good, and. You know, he's had some durability issues. Last year was the first time he stayed healthy for even 150 innings, much less 180. Uh, so Gallon, that, you mean, fact, right? Yeah. That's Gallon you're talking about, right, Scott? Right. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. You're right. Joe Musgrove was the same back-to-back. Sorry, I pulled, I pulled, uh, I had pulled uh, Zach Gallon's page up and was looking at it to analyze <laughs> um, Joe Musgrove. No, he has, Musgrove has had some durability issues, but Actually, gallons are a little worse, so that doesn't that's not a point in Musgrove's favor or in Gallon's favor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, remember um, this time last year, we were convinced that Zach Allen's arm was about to explode. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, well, shame I, was. On us. I mean, it, the, the declining swinging strike rate and coinciding with the strained elbow ligament, like that just seemed like a red flag, but he managed to hold it together for a full season. And the swinging strike rate didn't even prove that much. And, and look at how good Gallon was. So my, my, those concerns for Gallon are basically gone for me. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't see a lot of room for growth from Joe Musgrove, who uh, for what it's worth is now 30 as well. I turned 30 in the off season. All right, before we hit the break, reminder that we've got a mailbag coming up later this week. So email your questions to fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. That's the letter I. Or leave a five-star rating on Apple and drop a question in the review. We're also taking requests for player profiles, which we will feature on our Fantasy Baseball Today in five podcasts. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Let's take a break, and we'll be back right after this. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Three more names going from picks 86 through 90. So very bunched up in this range of the draft. Tyler Glass now with an ADP of 86. Tristan McKenzie at 86.2. And Robbie Ray with an ADP of 90. Chris, we were talking before the podcast and we're talking about Robbie Ray. Kind of a tale of two seasons. I remember last year, first 12 starts, abysmal. The velocity was down. Again, I was freaking out. Scott had to kind of calm me down a little bit. First 12 starts. I was with you, man. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot to be worried about, right? Like, first 12 starts, 4.97 ERA, 1.32 whip. But over his final 20 starts, 2.97 ERA, 1.12 whip. The, the swinging strike rate came down a lot, 12.2%. But that's because he implemented the sinker. So mm-hmm. where are you at on Robbie Ray? Uh, the fact that the strikeouts came down, the walks kind of went up a little bit, but he ended the season really strong. I mean, he became a fundamentally different pitcher in the second half of the season, really the, the final two thirds of the season with the introduction of that singer, because what made Robbie Ray's start to last season so concerning for me was he was as much as any pitcher in baseball, except for, you know, maybe Spencer Strider and Carlos Rodon really, really dependent on a very, very good four-seam fastball. He relied on it as one of his primary swing and miss pitches, and he didn't have it. You know, there's a big difference between throwing 95 and throwing 93. And so, you know, when he didn't have that and he wasn't getting as many whiffs, it it was really concerning because he's always been a guy that he gets hit hard. There's no getting around it. Even when things are going well, he won the Cy Young. Uh, while giving up a 401 expected Wobon contact, which is well above uh, league average of 368. That's just who Robbie Ray is. And even last year, he was right around league average with that sinker. So that raises an interesting question of, can he combine the two? Can he get back to getting a lot of strikeouts, but also generating more weak contact? I, I think it's probably asking too much. But even if he doesn't, I think he's a fine buy at this price because I expect regression from the 371 ERA. I think he's probably going to be more like low to mid threes, you know, maybe three, 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 four, a bunch of strikeouts. I think he's a pretty good pitcher. Like, I don't think there's that much of a difference between what I'm expecting from him versus what I'm expecting from someone like Dylan Cease, who also has a wide range of outcomes, has shown very, very good quality of contact suppression metrics, also very, very poor ones. So, I think those two guys, it's very close between them at least. So I think Robbie Ray's a fine buy. And if you're making the comp between Robbie Ray and Cease, a point in uh, Robbie Ray's favor is that he pitches in the much better ballpark in in T-Mobile Park in Seattle. Scott, we did an ADP battle on uh, Sunday night, Monday morning's podcast when you weren't here. And one of them was Glass now versus Tristan McKenzie. I think it's kind of upside versus safety at this point. Uh, Glass now returned from Tommy John surgery last year. He only threw 11 and two-thirds innings uh, and has never thrown more than 111 and two-thirds innings pitched in the majors. But, you know, last time we saw him, he was he looked like one of the best pitchers in baseball in 2021. Yeah. And Tristan McKenzie, he's always had the talent, but last year he just stayed healthy. He finally put it together. So uh, who would you rather target, Glass now or McKenzie? And, and do you actually draft any of these guys? I, I, I find that there's always somebody who's eager to take Tyler Glass now, and that someone isn't me. You know, if everybody's avoiding him, okay, I'll, I'll shoot for the upside there. But as, I mean, sort of as we were saying for Jacob deGrom on part one for the starting pitchers, like if, if we haven't seen him 
if, if it's been this many years and we haven't seen him deliver a starter's workload, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too comfortable at this point that it's going to change. It did change for Carlos Rodon finally a couple years ago, so it could happen. But you're not getting glass now at like that basement level price that that makes it all reward and no risk. You know, it's still a lot mm-hmm. of risk at this point, especially when you're lumping them in with pitchers like Robbie Ray and Tristan McKenzie here. So I don't know. I, I haven't really been faced with the choice of whether to draft glass now, because I, I seem to rank, I, I seem to be lower on him than the consensus, but there, there is a point where I would take him. Uh, but I definitely prefer McKenzie and, and certainly Ray to him. Ray. I want to, I want to talk about Ray a little more because I feel like, the floor is lower from for compared to like a Kevin Gossman and you Darvish. But I, I think the ceiling is similar. I mean, as he showed in 2021 and he actually did have a 15 start stretch in the middle of last year where he had a 227 ERA. And, you know, he brought in the sinker that he never really used before and faded the four seamer and still got a lot of strikeouts with it. He had several several double-digit... like the, the swinging strike rate as a whole was down for Robbie Ray, but he still, during that 15-start stretch, had five double-digit strikeout efforts. Um, and then he... down kind of, before he introduced the sinker. You know, the strikeout rate and swinging strike rates were down before that, so it wasn't... Yeah, they didn't, like, fix it, though. Yeah. They gave him better control, mm-hmm. And he still got a lot of strikeouts despite not getting swinging strikes at the rate he did before. And then at the end of the season, he kind of went back to four seamers and had a rough September. So I don't know. Like it, honestly, there was a similar it, things played out pretty similarly for Luis Castillo, who's also with the Mariners now, got traded to the midway through last season. And um, I think it was the opposite, though. He had, right? Is, is that right? He leaned on a sinker heavily, Luis Castillo, and then broke out more of a four seamer. Yeah, the the sinker was more. Uh, I think George Kirby also started throwing a sinker more last season, and, and Logan Gilbert I think also did. They, it was very much a staff wide thing. I, I Luis Castillo less so, but they they made a conscious decision to throw more sinkers. Uh, I will also throw out. I don't know if it means anything yet. We'll see. But Robbie Ray is working on a new pitch in spring training. There's no confirmation of what it is, but I believe Corey Brock from the Athletics said it's almost certainly a splitter. So that's something to keep an eye on. He's never thrown a splitter before in his career. So that it's just a weird variable there with Castillo and Robbie Ray, where we don't, it's not like they ditched one fastball for another. They just started throwing a lot. They started throwing the one that they didn't really have. They started throwing it a lot all of a sudden. And then they'd kind of switch back and forth between the four seamer and the two seamer. And it just, it just seemed to depend. Uh, by the by the start, which was working better for them. And it, it it kind of it kind of makes it hard to know what to expect from either of them. So because Robbie's Ray's price is what it is, I kind of see that as a, a positive where okay, he has two fastballs that he's found success with now. And if one's not working, he could pivot to the other and hopefully go on a run like he did during that 15-start stretch last year with the 227 ERA, I think it's another opportunity to get a potential ace at 
clearly not an ace cost. Let's jump past pick 100. We have three pitchers going from picks 102 to 104. Again, really bunched up. Logan Webb at 101.6, Kyle Wright at 102.8, and Logan Gilbert at 104.4. Scott, I, uh, Kyle Wright broke out last year in a big way. Uh, obviously, leaning on this new curveball, he had 21 wins, the only 20-game winner. The problem now, and I don't know if it's uh, how big of a problem it is yet, but it was reported a few days ago that Kyle Wright had a cortisone injection in his shoulder in January and will be delayed in spring training. So uh, to, how much does that worry you? And, you know, like, do you, do you think this ADP drops, I don't know, 20, 30 picks, something like that? Or what are your thoughts? <laughs> It doesn't worry. It doesn't worry me. Twenty, thirty picks worth. So if he drops that much, I guess I'll be drafting a lot of Kyle Wright. But I did drop him um, two or three spots in my starting pitcher rankings based on this. I think I was kind of higher on him than the consensus to begin with. Uh, he wh- one of the things he said in relation to that cortisone injection in the shoulder is that his shoulder feels better than it did last year. Which I wasn't I wasn't really sure how to take that. But I, I there's certainly a positive way you could take that because he had by far the best year of his career and he's saying his shoulder wasn't feeling great. So I don't know. Um yeah, so he he uh his curveball got better, he threw it harder, he threw it more often, and it was a great pitch for him. It got more swinging strikes, it made him you know, about a strikeout per inning guy, which is good enough with ground ball tendencies like his. Uh, he controlled the zone better, and he was pretty consistent throughout the year. I, I think it was a legit breakthrough. He's going to have trouble living up to last year's production simply by virtue of uh, him leading the majors with 21 wins. And even for a great team like the Braves, it's unlikely everything's going to fall in place for Kyle Wright to do that again. I think... Yeah, Max Fried was a better pitcher, and he won 14 last year. Right. Yeah. So maybe they swap win totals this year. Like, that that wouldn't be surprising. That's just kind of the the nature of wins. Uh, So, you know, it's appropriate that Kyle Wright is being drafted more... How how deep are we in starting pitcher now? 30... Uh, I don't think that we've hit 30 yet, but let me pull... Uh, okay. Yeah, it's actually exactly SP30 for Kyle Wright. Okay. Yeah. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. I agree. Chris, I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, but some things that I want to pick with uh, Logan Webb and Logan Gilbert. They both had strong seasons, but for Webb, the strikeouts did come way down, at least the strikeout rate uh, from 2021, and his sinker velocity was down one mile per hour year over year. Logan Gilbert, again, really strong season, but his swinging strike rate came down, and uh, he gives up a lot of hard contact. We're talking first percentile in average exit velocity, fifth percentile in hard hit rate. This is typically a range that I have been avoiding. I, I I have not been drafting a lot of Logan Webb or Logan Gilbert. I like Logan Webb quite a bit more than Logan Gilbert um, because one, we've just, I throw Logan Webb in that like he's another variant of the uh, Framber Valdez, Sandy Alcantara. Like he's not as good as those guys, but I think it's a high floor pitcher 
because he gets so many ground balls, because he in- induces so much weak contact, because he pitches in such a good home park, I think there's a very high floor there. Like what he did last season, I think that's you can pretty much expect something similar to that most seasons. And I think there is some upside. If he gets back to getting more whiffs with that slider like he was in 2021, I think there's room for the strikeout rate to improve. He's never going to be a big strikeout pitcher. I don't think he's ever going to be like an ace, but I could see a top 15 outcome from Logan Webb with just a few things going right for him. So I actually think he's pretty good at this price. Logan Gilbert, I... I don't really get it at this price. I, I think he's decent, but like, I don't know where more strikeouts are coming from because he's got like a collection of decent but not great secondary pitches when it comes to whiff rate. His fastball is okay at getting whiffs, but he also gets hit fairly hard, like you said. I just, I think George Kirby's clearly a better pitcher than Logan Gilbert. I prefer him uh, even without accounting for price. And I just, I don't quite understand Logan Gilbert's price. I mean, you look at just the ERA whip K per nine for Logan Gilbert. It's basically what Kyle Wright had last year. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I perceive Gilbert as having more upside than Wright. Like, I I feel like Wright's basically maxed out his upside. Gilbert was just as good last year, apart from the wins. Um, And... Yet, I, I do think there's more upside for him. He did have three starts in September with nine plus Ks. So I don't know if it was just a fluky thing that happened in September or he figured something out that allowed him to take a step forward with the strikeouts that he could then carry over. He's he's young enough that I could see the latter being uh, a possibility. But, you know, even if you're just drafting him straight off 2022 numbers, I, I think this is an appropriate place but to take Gilbert. That's where I think the 2020 numbers are kind of 2022 numbers are kind of a mirage because he does have the 320 ERA, 411X ERA. Yeah. So like he does pitch in a good park. So I, I think that'll help him avoid the worst case scenario. But like, I think he's probably more like a high threes ERA pitcher than a low threes ERA pitcher. Unless he can get more whiffs, which sure. is what he did as a rookie, and then it kind of took a step back last year. For what it's worth, Chris, you brought up Robbie Ray was working on a new pitch, likely a splitter. There was some video from Logan Gilbert at Driveline Baseball a couple of weeks ago where he's working on a splitter as well. So I don't know how much he'll implement that pitch. We could watch during spring training, but it's worth noting for uh, Logan Gilbert. I'll, I'll also mention that of the ERA estimators, XERA was by far... Right, the lowest that, on Gilbert. That's yeah, the what. Sixth tip. That's the one that accounts for quality of contact, where he's really poor. Right, and so maybe look, that's that's one that's very noisy, and maybe it was just you know he he was on the low end of variance last season, but he was also pretty bad in quality of contact metrics in 2021 as well. So, you know, while there's room for improvement, and you, you never want to box a player in. I just I think he has a lot of improvement to do to repeat last season. And I think he's probably being drafted as if he's going to. The next group features two Bronx Bombers. Oh, my goodness gracious. And a youngster who we've already mentioned. That is George Kirby. Nestor Cortez has an ADP of 106. Luis Severino at 107.4. And George Kirby at 108.2. Nestor Cortez has now done it two years in a row. He has made 42 starts since the beginning of 2021. 2.61 ERA, 0.98 whip. 
266 strikeouts, over 251 and a third innings pitched. And then Luis Severino, he came back last year from injury through 113 total innings. That's including the postseason, his most since 2018. And he was really good last year. Once again, he did it a little bit differently. He didn't throw his slider as much. So I don't know, like maybe the slider hurts his arm to throw. And that's kind of why he lowered the usage. I don't know. I'm just kind of theorizing here. <laughs> but uh, something I thought about with Luis Severino. Scott, yeah. do you have no, a... That's- I know, I know we talked about it last year. We were like, why isn't he throwing the slider? You know, is it injury related? So I, I don't know. But uh, do you have a yeah. preference between these two, Nestor Cortez and Severino? And, and do you actually target them? I prefer Nestor Cortez for durability reasons. I mean, Severino seems like a pretty big injury risk at this point. Yeah, we did talk about over the course of last season. I mean, slider's a pitch that puts a lot of strain on the elbow. And... It's not uncommon to see pitchers coming off me John's surgery reluctant to throw the slider as much or with as much conviction. That can be something that holds them back in the initial months returning from that injury. So Severino did gradually up his slider usage. It was like 11.5% in April. And then by July when he got hurt, it was 27 and half percent it had he had thrown it it was thrown it two and a half times often as in that first month did that contribute to him having more health issues i i don't know but like it's it's <laughs> the whole thing is a quagmire with severino and just what could go wrong next for him so while it was encouraging to see the way he performed i think the the injury risk carries more weight Meanwhile, Nestor Cortez, there were a, there was a lot of skepticism heading into last year about the way he finished 2021. Understandably, I mean, he, his stuff, his raw stuff doesn't look impressive. He wasn't a particularly highly regarded prospect or anything. Um, but he followed up on it and then some actually improved his, his strikeout rate, had, you know, more than a strikeout per inning. Another pitcher like Christian Javier and Tristan McKenzie and some of the ones we talked about yesterday who the fly ball rate would have given you pause during the juice ball era, but at the time he's pitching now, it it actually seems more like a benefit than a detriment. And, uh, you know, that, that's just like sort of like strikeouts. It's just a bunch of free outs. If they're, if those fly balls aren't leaving the yard. Uh, so I think, I think Nestor Cortez is pretty, his effectiveness is pretty well established at this point. He has some durability issues to prove himself. Didn't get to 150 innings during the regular season last year, but I think they're overall less concerning than Severino's. And, and the final stat line, you know, I mean, between the two, Cortez's ERA was much better last year. It was in the 240s. I don't know that he could do that again, but as long as he's keeping it under three, I think he'll definitely be deserving of this draft pick. Even with being a flyball pitcher, I think his 232 BABIP is unsustainable for Nestor Cortez. He doesn't give up a lot of hard contact, but that number just seems really low. And he also has maintained a strand rate over 80% two years in a row. It's, I, I think there could be some regression here, but even with that, if, if he pitches to right. a three ERA with a strikeout per inning, that, that's still a really valuable pitcher exactly. uh, for Nestor exactly. Cortez. I mean... How far, how deep are we in the pitching rankings now? We're approaching 35, right? Yeah. And we're like, oh, this guy might not have a 240 ERA next year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, like, 
even if a pitcher regresses, he still could be really good this upcoming season. Chris, we yeah. spoke about George Kirby recently as a pitcher. The Welsh loves this season when we did uh, the players we love on Valentine's Day, and he was really good as a rookie. George Kirby was. The problem, he had a 1.21 whip. Well, how is that possible with someone who has his type of control, right? 331 Babbitt. So he does pitch in the zone a lot, which makes him kind of hittable. And he didn't get a, a lot of whiffs last year. That doesn't mean it can't change. He's a young enough pitcher. He comes with a lot of prospect pedigree. Only a 9.7% swinging strike rate for George Kirby. I looked at the Fangraph's pitch grades. They give him a 50-grade slider, a 45 curveball, a 50 changeup. I'm just kind of skeptical that we get that's, this kind of big strikeout season from George Kirby. That's kind of the issue with him is that, I mean, one thing that you rarely ever see, I feel like Brandon Woodruff maybe used to be this, but even now his changeup whiff rate has gone way up. But George Kirby's forcing fastball whiff rate was by far the highest of any of his pitches. 26% whiff rate, that's whiff per swing, um, which is different than swinging strike rate different denominator it's don't worry about it um i don't know why we have to confuse things like this but that's what we use for that uh curveball 13.7 slider 14 percent. his forcing fastball whiff rate was almost double his curveball and slider that's wild you really don't see that very often and it it makes me wonder what the next step is for george kirby because he's got to get more strikeouts i i think i don't think he can continue to live in the zone as much as he has and be able to survive that way because the swing and miss just isn't there. And so he, he's got to take one of those pitches to the next level, unless as he did sort of starting mid season, starts throwing a sinker more. Maybe that gives him a little more quality of contact suppression to make up for the lack of whiffs, but both him and Gilbert, I'm just like, I'm not sure where the next step comes from for both of them. I prefer Kirby by a hair. They're, separated by one spot in my pitcher rankings, but it's because I think Kirby's present skill set is a little stronger. He got a few more strikeouts last year. I don't think that's going to be a big edge for either of them, but the control, the quality of contact suppression, I think is better for Kirby. So I give him a slight edge, but I do think they're both probably being drafted as breakouts in a way that I don't know if the skill set quite supports. Right. Yeah, I've had bigger questions about Kirby than than Gilbert myself, and we already went back and forth on Gilbert. You know, p- uh, part of it is just Gilbert got to 185 innings last sure. year, and and uh, Kirby got to 130, and I think that's probably a professional high for him because he had a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of issues with the pandemic season and everything that prevented a lot of minor league pitchers from accumulating innings, but Kirby specifically, the inning what? T- totals were... For what it's worth, he got to 156 and two-thirds if you include the minors last year. Okay, he did make 31 starts. Yeah, 31 yeah. starts last so year. It was, but it was a big increase from, yeah, his, yes. his professional high prior to that was 67 and two-thirds. Yeah. So, like, Kirby Kirby has, uh, you know, they, we got to worry about the big innings cre- increase just for starters. But, yeah, you add the fact that unless he develops – or begins emphasizing secondary pitches like he did it last year. And, you know, they probably he probably needs to improve them if he's going to start emphasizing them. I don't know that, you know, a slider that gets the whiff rate his did last year is worth throwing more. But he needs to show improvement with that or else I just think he's going to be too hittable. Now, his control is the best 
skill that either Gilbert, the best skill between the two Mariners pitchers, Gilbert and Kirby. Like Kirby, one of the best strike throwers in baseball, but he trades off a lot of hits with that. He he, he had more hits than strikeouts as a rookie last year, Hmm. uh, which you don't see a lot from good pitchers. So I think given his pedigree and the fact he is such a good strike thrower, I could see Kirby taking a big step forward. But as you're saying, Chris, like I, I don't, he hasn't really teased a plan for that. It's it's just gonna have to come out of the out of the woodwork, you know. He'll he'll unfurl this amazing slider that'll have us all gasping in spring training, maybe, and then I can get behind George Kirby as a breakout this year. But currently I have him as a bust for all the reasons I've mentioned. All right, fair enough. The next trio are all what could be or should be per inning studs. This season, Clayton Kershaw at 110.6, Hunter Green at 115.6, and Blake Snell down at pick 118. Chris, Clayton Kershaw, he just keeps getting it done. I mean, he has a 3.55 ERA or less in 14 straight seasons. Um, And, I mean, the underlying skills are, are still really, really strong for someone who turns 35 years old in March. The problem is... He's going to miss time. He hasn't thrown more than 126 and a third since 2019. Uh, And he kind of reminds me of, I don't know what percentage you want to put on it, 60%, 70% Jacob deGrom, and you're getting him 80 picks later. So I think if you have two safe options up top on your team, I think Clayton Kershaw's a fine target. Yeah, because the thing about him is I don't know how much, like, could he throw 180 innings? This is one of those things with, when we're talking about guys like this, it's like Clayton Kershaw could probably throw 180 innings this season. It just requires him staying healthy, and we're skeptical that he will. But like, if he does stay healthy, I think he's probably going to average right around six innings per start, and I think he's going to be awesome. It's just he had, I think, two IL stints with the back injury last year. He had the elbow injury the pre- previous year. It's just there's a lot of things going on, and he's also very much talked about like, he's never sure at the beginning of the season, whether this is his last season or not. And so I think he's also very much like if I have to take two weeks off because my back's a little sore, that's not the worst thing in the world. He's got perspective, I guess is the way I would put it. And that's great. That's a very healthy outlook on life, but I think it probably limits the upside. I think it's probably, probably means that Clayton Kershaw and the Los Angeles Dodgers are going to take a, a proactive approach to making sure that he's healthy for the postseason, And that probably means that while he could throw 180 innings, he almost certainly won't. And that means that you got a really good pitcher when he's healthy and you just know you're going to be missing him for a while. I think the price is fine. I can't say he's someone I've drafted too much of this year. Another one of those ADP battles that we did on Monday Hunter green versus Blake. Snell. you get lots of strikeouts with these two, but also, potential volatility and injury risk with both of them. Hunter Green missed about six weeks last year with a strained right shoulder, but once he returned, he made eight starts with a 1.75 ERA. That's not true. He did not make eight starts. Some of these came before he returned from injury, but if you just look at his final eight starts, 1.75 ERA, 0.97 whip, and a 27.7% K minus walk rate. Um, I know the matchups were really good for Hunter Green during that time. Yeah. And then with Blake Snell, I mean, he got off to another slow start. It, it seems like that's expected at this point for Blake Snell. His final 17 starts, 
he looked like an ace, a top 12, top 15 starting pitcher. 2.53 ERA, 1.11 whip, 12.9 K per nine, 15% swinging strike rate. Scott, I really hope Blake Snell just leans into his slider like we keep asking him to do. It's a contract year, so I mean, if there's ever been motivation, why not do it this year? But man, over those final 17 starts, he looks like the ace we used to know him to be. Yeah, and and to, you know, I, I don't want to undersell just how bad he was. He said he got off to a slow start last year. He was bad. Two years in a row now around the all-star break, I've been making the case to drop Blake Snell in fantasy because it wasn't just that his ERA was high. It's that he was going like four and two-thirds innings every start and was just utterly useless. Like wasn't giving you a big strikeout total because those starts were so short. The, so short. the whip was through the roof because the walks were so high. He just looked like a disaster. And then... Two years in a row now, once he made the decision to go very heavy fastball slider and not worry so much about uh, incorporating a third pitch, it's, it, he just he just took off and, and looked like a, he became more efficient for one and still missed a ton of bats. And that's one thing, you know, just cumulatively you can trust Snell's going to give you is a ton of strikeouts. Like the strikeouts will be there. It's just, is the ERA and WHIP going to be low enough to make it worthwhile? And are the individual starts, like are, are, are any of them going to be good enough that you can stomach having him in your lineup when you get a chance to reset it every week? And and he's one of those guys that, like I said with Clayton Kershaw, if Clayton Kershaw stays healthy, I think he can throw 180 innings. Blake Snell's not going to throw 180 innings, whether it's health, whether like he's just, he's never been efficient enough. Even that one year when he was outrageously good and didn't win the Cy Young, but came close. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, he won. He won the Cy oh, Young. He won? Yeah. It was like 180 innings and he had to be outrageously efficient in a way that he never has been since. He's just not a guy who goes deep into games. Like Scott said, he, he's one that just like, I think there's a hard like 170 innings cap in my expectations well, for him. Un, un, unless he can maintain that approach all season with the, the fastball slider approach because he does become a lot more efficient when that happens. He is more consistently going six or even seven innings at times. And so I think, I think there is a ceiling that's still very high for Blake Snell. I know it sounds weird to say that for a 30-year-old who hadn't, hasn't, you know, he won the Cy Young five years ago. But those the, 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 the strong finishes he's had the past two years still give me some hope. And the price is reasonable, considering. I mean, Hunter Green, yeah, he has a lot of upside. He had in his, his final five starts last year were, were amazing against weak opponents, as you pointed out, Frank. But still, they were amazing. And if he can build off that, you know, he could be one of the biggest breakouts this year. He's still at a 444 ERA overall in his rookie season. He still had a whip over one, two. It still wasn't, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. It wasn't like for the majority of the season, Green was not be considered a must-start pitcher. And at times he was even on the waiver wire in 12-team leagues. He has, for as hard as he throws, his fastball can be hittable. It was at its hardest over those five starts, those final five starts. So 
you know, if he can maintain the absolute pinnacle of the velocity, of the, the amazing velocity he showed throughout last year, but if he can maintain the pinnacle of that over a full season, then maybe he can replicate those numbers mm-hmm. over those final five starts. But, you know, that's that's obviously a tough ask, especially given how hard he throws in general. And Hunter Green is an incredible pitcher. He's so fun to watch, too. It's, you know, I, I don't really want to talk down a kid this young, but if you just look at the context, too, of he's a fly ball pitcher and he pitches in Great American Ballpark, that is the worst place to pitch if you are and, a fly ball pitcher in it's all of baseball. Contact. So it's it's just kind of a, a rough marriage there for Hunter Green, but there should be a lot of strikeouts. Scott, do you have a preference between the two, Hunter Green and Blake Snell? I prefer Snell. Okay. Let's take one more break here, and then we'll get to sleepers, breakouts, and busts on the other side here on Fantasy Baseball Today. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on Homes.com. As somebody who's been through this, I can tell you these features are so, so incredibly valuable. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. The area you live in is just as important as the house itself. You can get to know a neighborhood without... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, let's do it. Sleepers, breakouts, and bust at starting pitcher. And Chris, we will start with you. Give me two names here, two sleepers for you. Yeah, Edward Cabrera, who I've mentioned as a sleeper several times this spring. I just... I bet on the Marlins pitchers. I bet on guys who throw 98 miles an hour with 94 mile per hour changeups. Uh, I think he can be really good if he takes a step forward with his command. One guy we have not mentioned at all this offseason, at least not on any of the podcasts I've been on, is Jamison Tyone. I wanted to talk about him because he is someone who signed with the Cubs. This is very much an anti-Yankees thing, Frank, 100% that uh, I like him now that he's not on the Yankees. No, it's it's because... He's, he talked about this in in training in spring training the other day, how last offseason, I believe, he was coming back from ankle surgery. And he said he was just, like, trying to keep his head above water. Like, he was coming back from Tommy John surgery the previous year, then he was coming back from ankle injury surgery, and he, like, never had a chance to work on things. He was just trying to get his – he had a new delivery. He had all this stuff going on. And this is the first offseason in a while where he's had an opportunity to tinker. And one thing that he's done is he's introduced a new slider into his uh, repertoire, uh, more of a sweeper. He, you know, did the track man tracking and all that stuff. And it sounds like it's gone really well. Now this is him talking about it. We haven't seen it against pitch uh, against live hitters yet. You know, we won't know for a while, but Jameson Tyone has good control. He's got pretty good quality of contact skills. What he hasn't had is a way to put hitters away. You know, the slider kind of was that at times, but this new sweeping slider, which is a, a thing that the Yankees have, have really popularized, the Dodgers as well, the Cubs have actually had good success with it with some of their pitchers as well. 
it's something that if it gives him a swing and miss weapon, I do think there's a chance that Jamison Tyone could, uh, you know, take a step forward and become, you know, a, a very good starting pitcher. Maybe not a must start guy, certainly not an ace, but I think there's a path to Jamison Tyone being uh, a very reliable starting pitcher and he's going super, super late. Scott, you were up two sleepers at starting pitcher. All right, so I'm going to go with a higher-end one and then a lower-end one. Uh, for the higher-end one, I have difficulty choosing between a couple old guys, Chris Sale and, and Charlie Borden, who go in about the same range. I think I've decided I prefer Sale, and I'm sure I'll have a chance to talk about Charlie Morton later. Um, but Sale seems like he's in a similar place of being undervalued that Justin Verlander was at this time last year. Verlander, of course, went on to win. A.L. Cy Young and and gained a lot of steam in spring training, started surging up draft boards. I think something similar could happen to Sale if he looks healthy and effective this spring, um, because we kind of we kind of already saw his return from Tommy John surgery in 2021. He looked great, 3.16 ERA in nine starts. The control was a little off, but that's that's usual fresh off Tommy John. And then we didn't really get to see him put together the full season last year because first he had a, uh, a stress fracture in his rib cage in spring training, finally returned to midseason, made a couple starts, and then fractured his wrist. Two injuries that you don't really worry about having uh, long-standing effects for pitchers, just, just kind of fluke things that happened to Chris Sale that aren't, don't, don't fall into the usual category of pitcher injuries. You know, where, oh, this guy's not durable or whatever. So I think it's, I think people are just kind of burned out on Chris Sale because the wait has been so long and it's been delayed over and over again. But there's no reason to think he's any less of a pitcher than he was when we last saw him healthy, which was five years ago at this point, but you know what I'm saying? Like the little bit we've seen of him since coming back from Tommy John surgery has looked promising enough that I'm willing to, I'm willing to invest in Chris sale as like a number three pitcher and have a pretty good feeling. He'll outperform that as long as he's able to take the mound every fifth day. So that's the first one. On the lower end, I'm going to go with Trevor Rogers, who I didn't like going into last year. Remember, he was one of my busts, and that played out. He did bust pretty badly, but now, like, the pendulum has swung the other way because the enthusiasm is completely gone for Rogers, a guy who last year was being drafted in the same range as Shane McClanahan and Alec Manoa, um, now is barely being drafted at all. And while the overall numbers are terrible, there was this brief glimmer of hope when he first came back from a, uh, a stint with back spasms. He was on the IL for a while. Goes on a rehab assignment. He has a start where he throws six no-hit innings, strikes out 12. He comes up. And for the three starts he made where he was healthy, the fourth wasn't so good, but you know he left with an injury and we didn't see him for the rest of the season. But for the three starts Trevor Rogers made when he was healthy, he had a 295 ERA, a .93 whip, 10.8K per nine, 
His swinging strike rate was 13.1% versus the 10.7% in the 19 starts preceding it. And that's the difference between like a really good swinging strike rate and a really bad swinging strike rate. It's, it's, or at least an average swinging strike rate. It's, it's a big difference. So like he basically looked like the Trevor Rogers everybody fell in love with in 2021. It was for a brief period of time, but it was after he had a chance to like go over his mechanics again and get straightened out because he was on the IL and then rehabbing. And, and he just, it seemed like he figured it out again. So for the price and given the enthusiasm that we all shared for, or that most of us shared for Trevor Rogers in the past, I think, uh, I think it's reasonable to take an optimistic approach with him this year. And the ADP for Trevor Rogers is 292.4. So indeed going very late, you, might be able to get him with the last pick of your draft. I've got two sleepers. Both are going outside the top 200 picks as well. I'm just going to continue chasing the dragon until it happens. John Gray. Last two starts last year, he got beat up. But if you look at his numbers leading up to that point, he had a 3.64 ERA and a 1.11 whip. It looked like it was pretty much happening. Now, injuries are consistently a problem for John Gray, but... There was some nice stuff happening underneath the hood. He posted a career-high 34.8% chase rate, his 11.6% swinging strike rate, and 96-mile-per-hour fastball velocity were both his best since 2019. And his fastball velo actually jumped up over a mile per hour from 2021 to 2022. John Gray is basically a two-pitch pitcher. Well, guess what? He has the best two-pitch pitcher on the planet in Jacob deGrom on his team. So maybe he could learn a few things, but either way, uh, I do like John Gray. And Ross Stripling is the other one. Last year, second half of the season, I was all over it. I mean, he was with the Blue Jays last season. He started throwing his changeup more. That's basically the recipe. Just throw your best pitch more, and that's what Ross Stripling did. He threw his changeup a career-high 27% of the time, nearly double how often he used it in 2021, and that pitch had a 203 batting average against 20.9% swinging strike rate on Ross Stripling's changeup, and now he pitches in San Francisco with the Giants. They do a great job with all their players, but uh, most notably their pitchers. It's a great park to pitch in as well, so two very late names, John Gray and Ross Stripling for me. Breakouts, Chris, who you got? Yeah, we've made the Sandy Alcantara comp for a ton of players. Let's just do it one more time. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that this has become like a sexy comp because, uh, you know, guy who doesn't strike batters out is not necessarily what we chase. But I think Dustin May could very well be the next Sandy Alcantara. Not, you know, throwing 400 innings or whatever, but on a per inning basis, I think Dustin May has a lot in common with Sandy Alcantara. He's one of those guys that when you watch him pitch, it's like, how does he not strike everyone out? And well, it's because he doesn't need to because guys, when they swing at his pitches, can't do anything with them. They, they hit them into the ground. They hit them weekly. They look off kilter and he generates a ton of weak contact. He gets great results on balls in play. And the thing about Dustin May is the very, very rate. Sorry, brief time that we saw him in 2021 before the injury. It looked like he was making a leap. He was getting more swings and misses. He was getting his cutter. Uh, which he throws like 95 miles an hour because he's ridiculously uh, ridiculously good. Uh, he was getting more swings and misses with it. And I just think there is a path for like Sandy Alcantara-esque quality of contact and, and you know, those kind of metrics, but with more strikeouts. Again, if you get 140 innings out of Dustin May this year, I think that's a huge win. That's something he has gotten close to in the past, uh, 140 exactly in 2019. 134 in 2017 and 2018. So 
I think he's capable of it. He's shown the ability to throw that 150-ish innings uh, total. But just on a per-inning basis, I think Dustin May is going to be very, very good this season. And uh, Lucas Giolito. Let's go with a guy. This is, you know, I kind of tend to throw bounce backs in with breakouts. And apparently Lucas Giolito uh, weighed 280 pounds when he got to camp last last season. He had a miserable season. He's talked about it. He's in much better shape. I don't want to put too much on the best shape of your life thing. It's a meme for a reason. We make fun of guys. Everybody's in the best shape of their lives. Maybe Lucas Giolito wasn't this time last year. But it's, it's just my understanding. It was an intentional weight. Yes, game. he put it. Yeah, he put muscle on and he's right. he's trying to be more flexible this year. And he focused on yeah, that. And it just kind of ruined his delivery. Like when you change yeah. your weight that much, it, it throws off your mechanics. And so I'm just kind of betting that there's room for him. Look, this is a guy who's figured it out once before. And maybe he'll just never be good again. But I, I tend to believe that there's still room for Lucas Giolito to figure things out, get back to being not an ace, but a solid number three starting pitcher. I think he can absolutely do that. And there is like no cost to, to acquiring him this year. I'm, I'm going to pull up his, his price, 153. So I think there's room for him to end up in that, you know, Framber Valdez, you Darvish range by the end of the season. Yeah, the 46th starting pitcher off the board right now is Lucas Giolito. He's routinely been drafted as a top 12 guy, top 15 the past couple of yeah. years. So you are getting a big discount on him. It's got two breakouts for you, starting pitchers. Well, there's a lot of enthusiasm for Hunter Green, and I understand it. There's certainly breakout potential there, as we've talked about. But I think the safer bet for a breakout is his teammate in Cincinnati, Nick Lodolo, who was better as a rookie last year by both measurements. I mean, he had 11.4K per nine himself. And while he doesn't have the electrifying fastball, didn't, wasn't Hunter Green an outlier for 100-mile-per-hour fastballs last year? 46% of all 100-mile-per-hour fastballs thrown by starting pitchers last season were thrown by Hunter Green last year. And we love that, right? As, as people who enjoy baseball, we love to see him lighting up the radar gun with 100-mile-per-hour pitches. Well, Nick Lodolo doesn't do that, but what he does do might actually be better. He has... Um, a more complete arsenal, in particular, the curveball stands out. It has ridiculous horizontal movement, um, eye popping in its own right, but you know doesn't doesn't light up the radar gun. So uh, he tends to be a little overlooked because of that. Uh, over his final thirteen starts last year, Nick Lodolo had a two ninety two ERA, a one hundred six WHIP, ten point nine K per nine, and he's actually a ground ball pitcher, unlike. Hunter Green. So, Frank, you mentioned how Great American Ballpark could be a hindrance for Green breaking out. It, it will be less so for Lodolo. Uh, there's the durability question, as there is for any young pitcher. But overall, I prefer Nick Lodolo to Hunter Green, and yet he's being drafted after him. So, Nick Lodolo, that's breakout pick number one. Breakout pick number two, another young guy who I feel like broke out last year in a pretty obvious way, and yet he's not being drafted like it. And that's Reed Detmers, who uh, was terrible over his first 12 starts, 466 ERA, only 6.8K per nine, a 9% swinging strike rate. Got sent to the minors 
to work on his slider, picked up three miles per hour on the slider, came back up, and over his final 13 starts, actually one more than the number of starts he made before being sent to the minors. He had a 3.04 ERA, 9.9 K per nine. Remember, that was versus 6.8 before, and a 13% swinging strike rate versus nine before. So, like, Reed Demers appeared to be totally fixed and on the verge of taking off. And so I don't know where the enthusiasm is for him, but it 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 should be there. He was really good. Chris, don't act like we didn't hear that cat feeder go off. I, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to ride that mute <laughs> button as best as I can. Uh, I do love all the breakout picks that you guys provided. I wrote up Reed Detmers as a sleeper as well. Dustin May was in my breakouts as well. So we are in agreement. Last year, I gave you, the listeners, the profit pocket at first base, right? As an ode to Metallica, my favorite band. This year, I will give you a new group at the starting pitcher position, and it is the Four Horsemen. We're kind of workshopping that name. If anyone has anything better, let me know. The Four Horsemen, I want to leave my draft with at least one of each of these names. At least one. It could be more. Nick Lodolo, who Scott, you talked about. Dustin May, who Chris, you talked about. And then the two names I'm going to mention here as breakouts. Jesus Lazardo and Jeffrey Springs. Jesus, uh, basic, these guys already broke out. It's kind of like Reed Detmers for you, Scott, where... They're, they're just kind of being undervalued, in my opinion, where they're going in drafts right now. Lazardo, he finally put it together last year. He posted a 3.32 ERA, 104 whip, 120 strikeouts, over 100 and a third innings pitched. And among starters with 100 innings, Lazardo ranks 16th in K-minus walk rate, 16th in swinging strike rate, and 19th in Sierra. So by all the skill metrics, he was a top 20 pitcher. The problem is he's dealt with a bunch of injuries in his career. And obviously you can't discount that, but... If he manages to pitch 150, 160 innings, then I think Lazardo could give you a top 20 starting pitcher outcome this season. And Jeffrey Springs, much like Lazardo, he was really good on a per-inning basis last year. Among starter, starters with at least 130 innings, Springs ranked 15th in K-minus walk rate, 13th in swinging strike rate. Each of his FIP, XFIP, Sierra, XERA were 3.32 or less for Jeffrey Springs. So you choose a metric, you choose a stat, and Springs was really, really good. Scott spoke about this downside on yesterday's podcast. Springs made 24 starts from May 9th on. He only went six innings in seven of those. six. I don't even think he would ever went more than six innings. So you got to keep that in mind. I think they'll expand his workload a little bit more this year. They gave him a contract extension this offseason. But either way, when he pitches, I think Springs is going to be really, really good. Uh, so I do like the price tag for both those guys. I should probably mention that price tag. Lazardo at 140.4 and Jeffrey Springs going a little bit later at 170.4. I'll quickly start us off with Bus. I, I spoke about Sandy Alcantara yesterday. I don't think he's going to bottom out. I still think he's really good. Just think he's a little bit overvalued. The one that I'm probably just avoiding, regardless, is Tony Gonsolin. He was great last year. Finally managed to stay healthy-ish for 130 and a third innings. That was a career high at any level. And again, I want to reiterate. He was awesome on a per-inning basis, but he dealt with uh, he's dealt with recurring shoulder injuries. Last year, a strained right forearm in August for Tony Gonsolin, and this is normally something that precludes a worse injury. It didn't happen for uh, Zach Gallen. He went on to be awesome again last year, but normally it does. Uh, so I really worry about the innings, and Gonsolin's just going in a range right around... Uh, Lazardo and Chris Sale, who I like as well, Scott, and Jeffrey Spring. So a lot of those names I like, I just can't take the injury risk of, of Tony Gonsolin over those names, so he is a bust for me. Scott, 
two busts, two players that you are avoiding at starting pitcher. Well, I already talked about how George Springer is. I'm going to go with a couple higher end types who we talked about on part one. Shane McClanahan, just just in in case, just in the possibility that what we saw from him in September after missing the time with the shoulder injury, remember the swinging strike rate plummeted. Um, and there's a chance that those durability issues could carry over, that he will have trouble staying healthy for even the 166 and a third innings he was, and, and that he might not be as effective because who knows what was going on with that shoulder. And obviously the price tag is very high. The risks are more pronounced. Um, so Shane McClanahan is one of them. Dylan Cease is the other because, as we talked about in part one, he led the majors with 78 walks last year. When your stuff is as good as Dylan Cease's, when you can rack up strikeouts the way he can, you can, you kind of are only capable of beating yourself, and walks are the easy way to do that. And time and time, it, like Blake Snell, just look at him, uh, the way walks have sidetracked him for so many years. I don't know that Cease's downside is as bad as Snell's downside. I would certainly hope not. But I do think a very plausible scenario is that he regresses to his 2021 numbers where he had a 391 ERA versus the the uh, 220 ERA he had last year. And he'll still be a great source of strikeouts if that happens, but he, he definitely won't be deserving of his price tag. All right, that is Dylan Cease. Chris, bring us home, man. Two pitchers I, you're avoiding. I agree with Dylan Cease. I'm going to go with two guys, two more guys that we talked about yesterday a lot and just the downsides, or I guess one of them we talked about today. My, my memory's a little fuzzy. Spencer Strider, I just have a hard time seeing him living up to the potential price that you're going to have to pay to draft him, given the innings concerns. And kind of the same thing about with Tyler Glass now. I think both guys are awesome. I think if you get 150 innings out of either of them, that's a really, really good outcome. And even in an era where nobody really throws deep into games anymore and 200 inning starters are, are rare, the prices that you have to pay for these two guys, I just I can't justify them. I think there are similarly skilled pitchers going cheaper. I'd rather have Rodon than Strider. I, I, I don't have a good comp for Glass now because I just wrote about the Rodon-Strider comp today, but don't like Glass now at his price either way. Hey, I mean, I think uh, like Lazardo is someone who has awesome talent, obviously not the same talent as Glass now, but also comes with injury concerns. So uh, yep. if you're going to take those injury risks or, or even Chris Sale. I mean, even Chris Sale. Yeah. yeah, Chris Sale's yeah. a good example of someone who could pitch as well as Tyler Glass now, but give you 50 more innings conservatively, you know, let alone the, the, the fact that Tyler Glass now, I think is just a bigger injury risk than Chris Sale. Well, no surprise. Yeah. We we didn't get through all the pitchers <laughs> that I planned to get through today. But uh, Chris, I do want to kind of send you off. I know you're going on a little vacation, so we're going to miss you, bud. Thanks, thanks. And I just want to want to throw out. I, I was just gonna I was just gonna start naming more Marlins pitchers for the sleepers <laughs> if you had given me the opportunity. So you know, it's a good hey, thing we didn't. You and me both, man. It's <laughs> between Braxton it. Garrett. Yeah. Gary Perez, if he gets off to a good start in the minors. All Let's them. go. Stallions, baby. Except for Sandy Alcantara. Sorry, Chris. All right, we're going to wrap nah, there. Awesome. For Scott and Chris, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Baseball today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 